Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. UConn is one of the more than 100 land-grant universities nationwide, created under a federal law to open higher education institutions with a focus on agriculture, among others. The Morrill Act of 1862 gave federally controlled land to states for these schools. But a new project asks how these land-grant universities are linked to the displacement of indigenous communities. Coming up, we learn about Land Grab CT. First, this year was the first time a U.S. president recognized Monday, October 11th, as Indigenous Peoples Day, a day that's gained recognition in different states and cities in recent years, including in the city of Hartford. Supporters of Indigenous Peoples Day say it can be a starting point for the public to reflect on our nation's history and how that history affected Native communities. Now, by fall of 2023, Connecticut schools will be required to teach local Indigenous history. Today, where we live, we talk about what this could look like with the Ockhamout Educational Initiative. The Education Consultants Group aims to help educators teach Native history using Native source resources. For more Joining us now on Zoom is Chris Newell. He's co-founder and director of education at Akamout Educational Initiative, and he's a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. And, and with us as well on Zoom is Indonis Spears, director of programming and outreach at Akamout and a citizen of the Navajo Nation. Indonis, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you for having me. Our listeners can join as well. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. We met for the first time back in 2018 when you were head of education at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. And now you have this educational consultants group. So talk about the need or the demand for the type of offering that you're giving to Connecticut educators. Yeah, it's interesting the timing that we met and, uh, you know, the birth of Agamal Educational Initiative that both happened in the same year. Um, and a lot, uh, you know, my, my uh, um, uh, fellow co-founders and Donis and Jason Mancini, uh, the three of us met while we were working for the Pequot Museum. And uh, what we really started to do, uh, you know, we were having experiences in the museum. Um, where, you know, people from Connecticut would walk into the museum and occasionally, um, you know, even with a Pequot educator leading the tour would actually ask a question like, are the Pequot still alive? Um, you know, so we're, we're looking at uh, these experiences and realizing how, uh, you know, the education system is really failing things, uh, especially the residents here in the state of Connecticut. Um, you know, the, the Pequots, you know, are significant contributors uh, to the economy uh, of the state, um, you know, and are, uh, have a large presence. And uh, the fact that, you know, guests in the museum don't put 
put two and two together, um, that the community is still living here and is still vibrant and is still contributing, uh, was uh, experiences that we, you know, we, we uh, saw the need to try to remedy. And one of the ways to do that was to try to unsilo what was being taught in the Pequot Museum get it out into the rest of the state of Connecticut to be taught not as native history, but as history um, and to normalize uh, what we were doing there. It's uh, unbelievable almost to hear you share that anecdote that people asked you if the Pequots were still around, Chris. Uh, I remember when walking through that museum, what was so amazing about that museum, uh, so much to see and learn. But when we think about the way uh, children are taught about indigenous indigenous peoples in our country today, you know, they start with Thanksgiving, but the museum goes way back. Can you talk about that and why? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, we, uh, the museum is is really in stark contrast to the way a lot of Connecticut history is taught, which often ta- starts with the beginning of uh, colonial, you know, history in Connecticut. Um, you know, but the the concept that, that word Connecticut is really from the Algonquin languages here, and uh, depending on the tribe, it, it actually refers to the river. Um, you know, so the uh, the way the museum is constructed is to, uh, you know, kind of um, jump over that starting point that the American public school starts, uh, you know, the time clock of, of history of this country with European exploration, typically, and really resets it back uh, to the last ice age uh, and, you know, unapologetically teaches history of this land that we now call Connecticut from the perspective of the Pequots, uh, which would be in inclusive of of their uh, uh, time here going back 12,000 years. And Donis, uh, can you give us some examples of when you're working with educators, you know, what are you helping them draw out uh, from history and translating that for students inside the classroom? Yeah, I think classroom educators uh, who also went through the public school K through 12 system are at a deficit already um, because their competency with with some really difficult themes um, and complex themes uh, uh, is really not nurtured or cultivated during their undergraduate and and, um, during their K-12 experience. So we are asking educators to really uh, encounter new material um, and understand that the material exists in a dynamic of settler colonialism and uh, unequal power. And so uh, it, it is a big ask. And we realize that. And what we try to do with classroom educators is really uh, give them the indigenously sourced material that they can um, be confident that the work that they're doing is really accurate, first of all, um, and that it is uh, something that their students can utilize um, in in their their undergraduate studies, their K through 12 work, and then as they become citizens, as their uh, neighbors in Connecticut with these tribal nations, they can employ it regardless of where or when uh, they are interacting with Native people. They have this kind of uh, baseline knowledge of the history of the place that they live their daily lives and they're able to um, to employ that um, everywhere they go because everywhere they go uh, in Connecticut is indigenous land. And so it's really important that uh, our classroom educators have access to these resources and feel empowered to use them with their students. Their students then take that and use it for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. 
Chris, I, I wanted to add um, or ask you when we think about even terms that are used today, like what are you hearing from teachers? Are they comfortable with using the term Native American versus indigenous peoples and why that matters? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. That's such a great question because honestly, that is the most uh, popular question that we at Agamal Educational get, uh, whether it's from students to teachers to college professors and lifelong learners. Uh, oftentimes, you know, one of the things we do is try to open up a space where, you know, questions that might seem like, you know, adults especially feel like they should know but we're just not taught uh you know can can ask them and uh you know oftentimes i get the, the, the that exact question american indian indian native american native indigenous which one is the right one and one of the things i always tell people is that first of all let's examine the language we're talking in we're speaking in the english language which is a, a foreign language to this land and we're talking about a thousand plus different cultures using singular terms. And so the generalization under singular terminology is a concept that begins in Europe. Um, and, um, you know, none of those terms are technically correct. Uh, and they do change over time. And so we, we try to try to get into uh, Indian is actually a, a legal term that's included in the U.S. Constitution. We're never actually going to get rid of that whenever federal Indian laws are passed are going to include that word. Um, you know, but I do coach people that that is actually old-fashioned generalized terminology when we're speaking in English. Uh, you might hear the older generation, like my father's generation, speaking and using that because that's the language they were given. Uh, in the 90s, Native American, uh, American Indian were more popular, and now it's Native with a capital N or Indigenous with a capital I. Uh, but all essentially are, you know, because we're speaking in English and because of this need for generalization on occasion, um, we do have to use them. Uh, so, you know, that's where it's uh, gone to these days is uh, removing, you know, native with a capital N removes uh, the indigenous peoples of this country uh, away from the idea of America, which has only been around for a couple of hundred years. And once again, gets over that age of exploration and starts really digging back to the 12 to 20,000 years of uh, indigenous occupation of this country. So let's talk more about this law that was passed. Again, in fall of 2023, Connecticut schools were required to teach local indigenous history. Uh, with us here on Where We Live is Chris Newell, co-founder and director of education at Occamount Educational Initiative, and Indonis Spears, director of programming and outreach at the initiative. Indonis, uh, you know, because this uh, law passed, and now there needs to be work into how the curriculum will be uh, created, and, and again, where the resources will come from from uh, who will be helping guide local schools. Can you talk about what this law um, actually uh, calls for and how you hope Occamout and others will be able uh, to help as we look to students learning this in a couple of years? Yeah, I, it's a really exciting time to be living in Connecticut and especially as a parent to consider um, the opportunities that are being afforded to all of our students, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, um, to have access to histories that before now are oftentimes um, in the margins or footnote in our history books. So to really have opportunity to provide our students in the next generation with the comprehensive uh, nuanced understanding of indigenous people in Connecticut is so exciting. So I think just kind of recognizing the momentum and the excitement behind that first and foremost is really important. And 
there are so many stakeholders who are uh, need to be part of this process. And we know that anytime we have to do a group project, it always is more complicated and takes longer than an individual project. So we have to understand that um, the stakeholders who are part of the process of uh, creating and implementing a curriculum about the Native people in Connecticut with a concentration on the eastern wood, the northeastern woodlands um, are are varied, uh, varied stakeholders, uh, teachers. I think that classroom educators are key to kind of the initial conversations around what is most useful for them. Um, our, our, our indigenous communities, um, which is inclusive of the tribal nations that, that were really uh, pivotal in uh, getting this mandate um, passed. And I think that uh, making sure that we are in constant consultation with the Mohegan tribe and the Mashantucket Pequot tribal nation, um, as well as uh, uh, folks in the Department of Education who have the, uh, the institutional experience of how um, the, the logistics of these processes are rolled out. And then you have such a wealth of information um, in uh, the broader native knowledge economy, as my um, colleague and co-founder Jason Mancini um, refers to the knowledge within our tribal communities um, in Connecticut that can inform and shape uh, a, an educational experience for our students that is um, useful and helps prepare them to be informed citizens um, of the United States more broadly. You know, we can focus on Connecticut. We can use Connecticut as kind of the place where we set our examples and ground our students in an understanding of indigeneity and what that includes, but they get to use this information anywhere they move in the United States. And so it really is about being uh, an informed citizen of the world. And so I think that we have the opportunity to consult with all of these different stakeholders, all of these communities, and it's gonna, it's going to be a, a longer process in, I'm making a prediction here. I think that it's going to be a longer process, but it's going to be more sustainable because it includes the strands of all of these different forms of knowledge and that will inform um, a more sustainable and more useful uh, curriculum. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Again, in 2023, Connecticut schools will be required to teach local indigenous history. I'm talking about this with my guests and Donna Spears, Director of Programming and Outreach at Occamout Education Initiative, Educational Initiative, and Chris Newell, who's the co-founder of that initiative. We'll continue talking after the break, and we're going to hear from the State Department of Education about um, how they're going to help schools with this new mandate. Back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut is one of the latest states to pass a law mandating Native American curriculum be taught in local schools. By fall 2023, what will this look like at your child's school? We're talking about that with my guests on Zoom, Chris Newell, Director of Education at Occamount Educational Initiative, and Andana Spears, Director of Programming Outreach at that initiative. Uh, Chris, before the break, I, I asked Andonis about this new law, again, mandating that Indigenous local history be taught in in Connecticut public schools. Was this a surprise at all? And I'm wondering if you can talk more about, you know, I I was mentioning how children, what will children be learning? But for some teachers, this might be the first time they're learning this history, too. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, was it a surprise? I mean, uh, I think uh, Stephen, uh, you know, who was our guest with us, uh, you know, might agree that this was not exactly the way that uh, those that uh, uh, work on the ground here would have envisioned it happen. But it's still a glorious thing that it did happen Um, uh, because it's it's uh, you know, it's it's, uh, necessary in in this day and age to be inclusive of Native histories. You know, uh, we, we do our students no uh, service at all uh, not teaching them uh, about the Pequot War uh, and about uh, the hard histories that have happened here because eventually they do leave uh, the uh, K-12 system in Connecticut. They go, do get into m- more diverse audiences and they start to learn these histories and we've experienced this at the college level where we've seen these students uh, learn Native histories, realize what they weren't taught and they actually have an existential crisis uh, you know, about, uh, you know, what they were taught through their grade school years. Um, You know, so this is really a step forward uh, to undoing that, not just for the good of Native people, but really for the good of all students in the state of Connecticut. I wanted to bring into the conversation you mentioned, Steve, Steve Armstrong, who's the Connecticut Department of Education's social studies consultant. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So let's talk about this law. You know, is it the the law as written kind of vague? And so now, you know, you guys are all kind of starting from a, a place where you can really build and figure out what's the best way to have this curriculum in schools. Talk sure. about that. Yeah, the the law itself uh, and and vague or there's two ways to look at it. It's vague and then also that vagueness may provide a promise. Um, because the law does not say that you have to follow any curriculum. The law does not give a specific grade, but the law says that you must include the teaching of this subject in your social, in your curriculum, in your district. I think the good thing, I mean, the good thing about this is there's a lot of teachers that are teaching this subject now, but I, I would be honest with you, and I'm not being negative to teachers with perhaps not the best teaching materials. So I think this is a golden opportunity for Andonis, Chris, and the other people who will be working with us to, to create really cool, really updated and really relevant 
information on Native American tribes in Connecticut. And Donis mentioned uh, the tribes uh, being part of the discussion about why this kind of law is needed. Can you confirm if any leaders from the state's tribes yes, they, are involved reached, right now? Oh, I apologize for butting in. Um, no, they've reached out to us and they're, um, they would like to be actively involved, and we're all for it, obviously. They'd like to be actively involved in the um, in the creation of what we of, of, of the curriculum documents we create. And I, I think a place, by the way, that this oftentimes show up, one place where it shows up in school curriculums is in elementary schools. And the problem, again, I'm not knocking anybody, but the problem with elementary school teachers is there's some number of them that are not grounded in social studies. So they're being asked to teach, in some cases, a subject like this that they're not really familiar with. So I think the curriculum materials I'm going to push a little bit that the curriculum materials that we produce be especially relevant to elementary school teachers, because I think they need they need some help on this. Chris, I'm wondering if you can respond to what Steve shared uh, in terms of, you know, depending on um, the, the level uh, with not having that social studies grounding and the kind of opportunity that provides uh, you and others at Occamout. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things we really work at is, is becoming a bridge, uh, you know, uh, and Donis and I are, are both married into uh, the local Native communities. You know, my wife is Mashantucket Pequot. My children are Mashantucket Pequot. Um, you know, so I have a vested interest uh, in, in seeing improvement for them. And, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, how to incorporate this material, there's oftentimes a lot of fear. And I, I think there's been a little bit of pushback. You know, how are we going to jam this in? you know, to what's already, you know, a, a jammed curriculum. Um, but one of the things that we at Agamount do is we we find those common touch points and the, the crossroads. Uh, and a great example of that is, uh, you know, a lot of uh, elementary schools have a colonial unit or sometimes a Connecticut unit where it's just, just, just focused on colonial history. And uh, we worked with uh, Goodwin uh, Elementary School in redesigning that particular unit and taking the Connecticut unit and using the indigenous understanding of Connecticut as the river. And then by doing so, that whole unit then is redesigned and actually centers uh, Native people uh, in, in the state, uh, you know, starting 12,000 years and eventually gets into uh, colonization and disruption that happened in recent history. Mm. Uh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I, I would just say a strong, you know, one approach is to have a separate course or a separate curriculum on a subject like Native American history. But, you know, I, I think a, a stronger way to do it is to find, this, as, as Chris says, find the connections within existing curriculum. Yeah, so, Stephen, yeah. If, I could, if I could just add to what you and Chris are, are saying, because it resonates so much with our classroom educators who want to scaffold knowledge of Indigenous people, which I think is key to these conversations. You know, we talk about Indigenous studies as perhaps a separate course, but if we start to introduce material, there's a world of children's literature that can be accessible for our pre-K, kindergarten, first grade teachers, second grade teachers, that we can begin to introduce 
just the diversity of indigenous people uh, to our youngest students. And then when they get into geography, they're learning about the place names that they are already interacting with on a daily basis because the state itself is an Algonquin word. And as are many of the place names that students are familiar with. So we can begin to embed that information in their geography lessons in third grade. And then by the time they're in high school, they are understanding concepts around civics that are key to being citizens of the, Amer of the United States, including tribal sovereignty, self-governance, and what treaties mean. And so I think that by scaffolding and including these forms of knowledge in the curriculum as students move through K through 12, it really opens up opportunities for them to become critically engaged and critical thinkers as they graduate and move on to becoming informed citizens. Donna, that's an important strategy that you mentioned, the, the scaffolding and, and bringing it into all the different uh, 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 subjects that students are learning. Uh, Steve Armstrong, uh, again, with the Department of Education, you're the social studies consultant. What can we learn? from Connecticut's previous law that mandated schools teach the history of the Holocaust and genocide and the fact that, you know, the Native American history is also a story of genocide in this country. And so what can we learn from that mandate to maybe improve how this will be rolled out? I think what we, what, what we can learn is a, a good strategy. There's teachers that were teaching the Holocaust and genocide that were incredibly grateful for the new materials that was that were created in result as a result of that mandate and because I, I i think we're not going to get every single teacher in connecticut like we we couldn't get them to do genocide I, I i think it's a i don't think you can do that and i think i think the best thing that we learned from that is create very cool very innovative curriculum materials and the teachers will use them and another thing, by the way, that that was an interesting, you know, we're talking about connections and all that, that one of the things, the Pequot War was introduced probably by Chris Arundanas as as an example of 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 genocide. So the connections between these various courses that we can make are interesting as well. Mm. But I can tell you that there's teachers I've talked to teachers that teach this subject. That, that, that really wish they had more curriculum materials to use. Here we go. Here's an opportunity to do that. Chris Newell, I wanted to get you back into the conversation. You know, earlier you talked about when this law was passed, you know, there may have been fear from uh, some educators, like, how am I going to do this? Am I going to have the right support and have the right material uh, to teach my students? But I'm also wondering if you can talk about, you know, the moment that we're in right now. Do you expect that there's going to be pushback from some communities who may not want uh, children to see history from this lens? It's certainly happening in some in some Connecticut towns. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that's kind of uh, what happens in America occasionally. You know, once again, we do speak in the English language, which is a very noun based language. And, uh, you know, the English language likes to label things. And uh, one of the things that happens when we label things, it becomes easy to attack. You know, so the, the popular thing to, to label and attack these days is something called critical race theory, where, uh, you know, if people are uh, angry about it being taught in schools, I would ask them to, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, try to surface a piece of curriculum in any uh, elementary school that actually teaches critical race theory, which is an advanced literary theory taught to college age students. Uh, 
you know, so it, it becomes a label that people attack. And, uh, you know, uh, before that label became popular to attack, uh, you know, and Donis and I, uh, you know, and Jason, what we called what we were doing was just teaching history. Um, you know, we were just trying to teach all of it. And, you know, some of the history of how Connecticut came to be is very hard. But one of the things that we learned at the Pequot Museum is that young children can absorb the fact that a, a genocide and multiple genocides happened here, uh, you know, to Native people. Peoples, uh, but they have been resilient. They have been strong. They have survived, and uh, they they definitely do not, uh, you know, hold themselves accountable as guilty for part of that. But they get to better understand a world, uh, you know, a state of Connecticut that includes Indigenous people. And when students leave the Pequot Museum, it's an interesting phenomenon of that museum. They actually leave extremely more excited than when they showed up. I mean, they're already full of energy just because they're coming to this awesome museum, but they, because of what they learned and the impact that it had on them and the first person perspective that it gets told to them, uh, it really gets down to their bones and they actually leave more excited knowing about the Pequots and about their uh, contributions and that they're still here contributing, uh, you know, which, you know, that's the, the thing that we, you know, um, uh, that I would help, uh, uh, when teachers have fear of, of this topic, um, you know, and sometimes talking about genocide, there is, you know, the talk of age appropriateness and things of that sort, you know, it's not inappropriate to introduce to a third grader that genocide is a bad thing. Uh, and if we were able to stick at that level, uh, you know, and then start to scaffold the understanding from there, then as adults, they're not going to make light of genocidal situations and things like that, that can actually, you know, lead them into situations that would uh, otherwise get them in trouble socially. That's a very important point. And we're almost out of time. Uh, Steve Armstrong, you know, I wanted to go back to you. Um, when we think about how to move this forward and what needs to happen, can you talk about some steps that are happening right now? Sure. Um, we're, we're meeting with, uh, with, with, our, with our constituent groups, um, Chris and Donis and many, many others. And I, I think they don't know it yet, but I'm going to call, be calling on them to see if we can put together a summer workshop for teachers this summer. But building off, I, I think it's really important as well that we do a couple pro public programs on this because we're proud of bringing this forward. And, and we want to know, we want interested parents and interested community folks to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think that ultimately helps in the buy-in and, and, and helps parents support teachers as they're teaching. This has been certainly interesting. I'd love to talk with all of you again as this rolls out. Again, thank you so much, uh, Steve Armstrong, the Connecticut Department of Education Social Studies Consultant. And with us from the Occamout Educational Initiative, Chris Newell, Director of Education, and then Donna Spears, Director of Programming. We appreciate your time today here on Where We Live. Coming up, we learn about a new project called Land Grab CT that looks at how Connecticut's land grant institutions are linked to the displacement of indigenous communities. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How does UConn status as a land grant institution link it to the displacement of indig indigenous communities? Land Grab CT launched Monday. It's a public project examining land grant institutions in the state, localizing data from the Land Grab University project and an investigative report from High Country News. Land Grab CT's new website charts the distrib distribution of land grants 
and the coercive means by which they were taken from indigenous tribes. Joining us now to tell us more, Sage Phillips is on Zoom with us, a senior at UConn, a member of the Penobscot Nation. She was a driving force behind Land Grab CT, and she's also student coordinator for UConn's Native American Cultural Programs and president of UConn's Native American and Indigenous Students Association. Sage, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So how did this all start? So this really came out of the motivation to encourage the University of Connecticut administration to give reparations to our Indigenous communities, as well as our prospective Indigenous students who may one day consider the university. Uh, so myself, alongside one other student and Dr. Glenn Matoma at uh, Dot Impact at the university, kind of sat down and we were aware that the president, Thomas Katsuleas, the former president of the university at the time, um, was putting out this president's commitment to community initiative grant. So we knew we, we wanted to do something with the ability to gain funding for some sort of project, like I said, encouraging these reparations to take place. So we, it was really a roundtable discussion. At the end of it, we came up with sort of a, a two-part working system. One side of things would be having conversations with local Indigenous youth, asking them the big questions, you know, what do you look for in higher education? And how does UConn have that or most likely not? And then that would be its own set of data that we would kind of bring to administration on its own. And then on the other side, of course, was the inspiration from Dr. Matoma, who said, you know, let's go down to the archives and let's really examine the history of the land that the university occupies, which is not something at the time that we were aware was in the works with um, the Land Grab U project, the original project that inspired what now became Land Grab CT. Uh, and it was actually Dr. Matoma's idea to get our group to sit down with folks at Greenhouse Studios who have experts and researchers and design technologists and more, of course, that, you know, we could all come together, everyone would bring something to the table, and we can make a pretty special project out of this. You mentioned Greenhouse Studios. With us on Zoom is Luisa Fernanda Arieta, a historian on this project, and also UConn's Greenhouse Studios is the research incubator. Luisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I mentioned uh, the Morrill Act, uh, the start of the show. Can you talk about that federal law, the impact of it uh, that's still being seen today? Well, what happens like uh, before the Civil War in 1862, the United States government passed the Morrill Act donating uh, public lands to several states and territories. Uh, so they could establish agricultural colleges and universities. So what happened is like these lands uh, necessarily were in the same state that these schools were going to be established. So in the case of Connecticut, uh, they were awarded lands in Minnesota, Michigan, California, for example. And these lands were sold so the university could take this money as part of their endowment. So today, still that the money from those sales belongs to the university. The thing was that these the, were not public lands. These was actually lands that have been taken away from indigenous peoples through violence and coercion. So we kind of analyzed, we tried to analyze what does the Morrill Act means for these communities as well. Mm. Uh, when we think about that, um, th all of the land that was taken from indigenous peoples, I believe High Country News reported we're talking 11 million acres of indigenous land granted to these universities again. And when the Morrill Act was uh, first enacted, uh, not much money 
if at all, went to institutions that uh, pledged to educate uh, black and other uh, people of color in our in our country, Louisa. And so now, how do we quantify that when we think about you know some of the uh, the remedies that need to be made today? Well, what part of what we wanted to do with this project was definitely education, as Sage mentioned, when we saw these opportunities, like people still see the Morrill Act as something very good to happen in terms of high, uh, uh, instead of higher education, but they don't see normally get the whole story, what, what, what it meant for these indigenous communities. So we definitely wanted to educate in that regard and start a conversation in accountability and reparations, like there is this money at the, in the endowment of these land grab universities, what can be done to increase and facilitate the access of indigenous students to the universities? And also we have to take into account, if you visit their website, you will see that we have a part that is parcels. So basically what we did was to trace those 160 acres of land that comprise each parcel and see who did it, what community did it belong to, to whom it was sold, and what is done with it today. And many of them is like Walmart, or in the case of the Sonoma Valley, you have an a, a, this parcel of land that a house was recently sold there, and it's $2 million. So when you see those amounts of money, what we see is like the creation of generational wealth for in, in benefit of, of white people. And what we have seen at the same time is the detriment and the impoverishment of indigenous communities. So we definitely need to start a conversation in putting the money where our words are, I guess. Sage Phillips, I know this site has only been live for about one day. What has been the response from the Yukon administration and what do you hope to see from them? Uh, Unfortunately, I wouldn't say administration has specifically given us much of a response yet Um, as we've come to know working with administration does not move quickly. It certainly doesn't happen overnight. Um, And at this point in the project, I mean, we're really just giving our community the time to absorb all this information. Um, I mean, we did a ton of work on this. There's a lot of material there to read and to reckon with. So at this point, not a ton of direct communication with the university Um, in terms of what we hope. We are hoping that, you know, as um, Louisa said, the Morrill Act, especially, there was an email sent out by UConn's or UConn's former president last year that, you know, in a sense, glorified the Morrill Act. So that's one misconception that we really wanted to rework within this project and get administration to understand that that's that's not really the case. So next steps would be, you know, let's all sit down, let's have a conversation, let's look at what other land grab uh, universities have been doing across the country to install reparations with their indigenous communities and see um, what kind of middle ground we can all meet on. Sage, when you use the word reparations, uh, talk more about what that has looked like from some of these land grant institutions that have taken a look and are, are thinking about their history and you know how uh, to make some kind of, of remedy uh, in modern times. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you know as an indigenous student myself, reparations in this context really they speak volumes in terms of things like tuition waivers and representation so if you take the university of maine for example which my good friend chris newell certainly knows more about but um you know there's there's a tuition waiver there and 
that's that's a huge part of a reparation, just giving Indigenous students the opportunity to thrive in these spaces and just, you know, an equal equal access to getting to stepping into the doors of higher education. The other part of it, as I mentioned, is representation. Um, and the, another great thing the University of Maine has done has include signs around the campus um, that are written in, you know, Wabanaki languages. So, you know, it, it really, it can take, reparations take form in many different ways. As students, we, we really just want to be seen. We want to be given um, an equal opportunity to succeed. Uh, before we go, uh, Louisa, I wanted to go back to you. I understand there are 112 land-grant institutions to date. When we think about um, 19 of them as HBCUs, 35 are tribal colleges, there's also private land-grant institutions like MIT, Cornell, yeah. these institutions that have very big endowments. And so when we think about ways to invest uh, and to correct the wrongs of the past, uh, there's room to do that. I think that, yeah, definitely there is room to do that. We also have to take into account that historically black colleges and universities didn't receive the money until late in the 19th century with the Second Moral Act. And tribal universities and colleges only received a part of that money until 1994. So to begin with, the, the, the stage wasn't level for everyone. So definitely want to engage in conversations here across minorities that def- that definitely engage with the question of how, for example, me as a Black Latina woman, who we have contributed uh, to the oppression of Native, Ameri- Native peoples as well. Um, and I think that the amount, the sheer numbers of land-grab universities that there are in this country, and in the case of private uh, ones that have like a ton of money, there is definitely money. What we need is the, is the will to, to try to understand history from a more complex and wider perspective and, and understand what it, what it entails to create higher education in the United States. It entails the displacement and the violence uh, against uh, Native people. Well, Luisa Arieta, thank you so much for coming on the show. Luisa Fernandez Arieta, a historian on this project at UConn's Greenhouse Studios, and Sage Phillips, a senior at UConn. We'll be sure again to send our listeners to that link, landgrabct.org, to learn more. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. 